Recovery Elevator, episode 240. Uh, I'm working with people who have these terrible, terrible diseases, you know, a lot of the time caused by alcohol or, you know, smoking or whatever. And here I am getting absolutely wasted on the weekends and doing the exact thing that I'm educating them not to do right now. So I felt, felt like a massive fraud during that time. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. I often forget that about 25% of the listeners to this podcast don't struggle with alcohol. They are listening in support of someone who does struggle with alcohol. So for those listening in support of others, I welcome you and I thank you for being here. On today's podcast, we've got Rose. She's 37 years old from Taranaki, New Zealand. She took her last drink on March 2nd, 2019. And in this fantastic interview, she talks about the imposter syndrome, which I know we've all experienced before. It's a great interview, and I know you guys are going to love it. Alcohol is shit. The book is now out. Pick up your copy on Amazon in paperback or on Kindle, or get the audio book on Audible. Okay, let's get started. This episode is going to recap the Recovery Elevator Retreat that took place in Bozeman, Montana, August 14th to the 18th this past August. Now, right now I'm recording it on August 20th. This is coming out on September 23rd. It's just how it goes. I love doing the podcast. I'm always like three to four to five weeks ahead. So let's do this. I want to talk about the sponsors for the retreat. I want to thank Nutso, which is an organic non-GMO seven nut seed butter. Everybody got a jar of that. Thank you, Nutso. Rise Brewing. We had a brewing company sponsor the podcast. No, not that kind, guys. Uh, Rise Brewing does nitro cold brewing coffee. It was fantastic. I want to thank Fire Brew. Fire Brew is an apple cider vinegar-based health tonic. And I also want to thank Tajin, which is seasoning powder consisting of sal, chile, y limón. And you just want to wear a sombrero when you're putting Tajin on your food. So thank you to those sponsors. And also thank you to Odette, who lined up the sponsors. She was interviewed about 10 episodes ago, and she did a lot of great work, helped out a ton with this retreat. A bit about the sponsors. How cool is that, that people want to be part of this event? Not surprising. Of course, they want to be part of this event. It wasn't a tough sell. Odette simply emailed these people, shared a link, told them what the event was about, and they said, whoa, this is an incredible event. Of course, we want to be part of it. Okay, so first off, I want to thank all of the 72 beautiful souls who attended the retreat. I heard the familiar stories of people almost not getting on the airplane, of arriving in Bozeman, Montana, and wanting to get back on the airplane to go home. There was fear that people pushed through to get themselves to this retreat. They leaned into that intuition that made them sign up for the retreat, perhaps months, five, six, seven, eight months before the retreat. So nice job. There we go. And unfortunately, not everybody made it. There was more than 72 who signed up, but that's who made it. And that's how it goes with these retreats. And there was so much love in the group. That became evident within a couple hours of people arriving. There was so much laughter at the retreat. There were tears. There were breakthroughs. There were melt-ins. You might be saying, what's a melt-in? Well, we've heard of the word melt-down, but that doesn't accurately describe what it is. It's a melt-in or a melt-up, however you want to say it. People gave themselves permission to let whatever emotion they were feeling to come out. Emotions were allowed to be expressed. Emotions were not bottled up and packed in some recess of the body. And the overall arching theme for the retreat was let your authentic self speak. Give your authenticity a voice. And I saw that. It didn't happen day one for everybody, but throughout the retreat, I saw each and every person give their authentic self permission. I know it sounds weird to say the word permission, but they allowed that voice that's been there all along to come out. And this was another point that we tried to nail down in the retreat was it's been there all along. This is not about finding your authentic self. In fact, I had a conversation with somebody on Saturday morning who said, I know I need to go find my authentic self. I said, yes, beautiful. However, it's not finding your authentic self. It's letting it come out because it's been there all along and we both know it. Your authentic self, just think back when you were a kid and sometime it was there. And so it's all about letting that authentic self come out, not about finding it. 
watching the authentic self come out was fun. It was incredible to watch. Now, the authentic self came out in forms of laughter, joy, hugs, high fives. But sometimes it came out in the form of tears and snot and difficult emotions. There was no right or wrong way to let your authentic self come out, and we embraced it all. So how do I summarize this retreat? Of course, as the host, the person who put the retreat on, I'm going to say, it was incredible, and now let's go to Asia, which I will talk about the Asia trip after this in a second. But in this episode, I want to talk to you guys about some of the things I observed, things I learned from others, and share with you some of the common obstacles that people are facing. I want to share with you some initial feedback that I've heard, and I'll be interviewing some people who attended the retreat on future podcast episodes so you can hear their accounts of what went down. So what happened in Montana? (laughs) Well, the day after the retreat, a guy named Sam posted in Cafe Ari of a sticker or a decal that he actually purchased in the airport that said, shit went down in Montana, which is 100% true. So there was strategy on the placement of workshops, which culminated in a full mystical experience on Saturday night for some, and an actual question that I asked on the Sunday morning closeout was, hey guys, raise your hand if you were visited last night during breathwork by someone who is no longer on the planet, and about 10 people raised their hands. We'll cover that more in detail in a second. To summarize it in one word, we had fun. We gave ourselves permission to have fun, to enjoy the moment, whatever it was. We learned a dance to the song Funky Cold Medina by Tone Loke. Each day when we met in the morning to go over the itinerary for the day, we learned one new installment for the dance, four installments in total. And then on Saturday night, we had a DJ, we had a campfire, we're on the stage, and 60 or 70 of us did a group choreographed dance to Funky Cold Medina. And, and this video is on Instagram right now. It's by far as the most views of any video that I've put up there. Check it out. This video is incredible. We didn't have just one dance party. In fact, we had two dance parties. And the first dance party wasn't even scheduled. We were having a barbecue at the lake on Friday night. And the next thing I know, I turn around, someone hijacks my playlist. And it's a full-on dance party at 5,500 feet with snow-capped peaks in the background. Jen, it was so much fun to watch you come alive. And big shout-out to the new official RE hype girl, Carla. You've been hearing me say for a long time that the book Alcohol is Shit is going to come out on September 7th, and that was the plan. However, I knew I had to get a copy to each and every retreat attendee because without them, the book doesn't happen. And so when I signed up for selfpublishingschool.com, which is the service I use to help write the book, um, one of their selling points is if you follow their launch plan to a T, they basically guarantee a Amazon bestseller status in your category. Well, I fully deviated from that launch plan. In fact, I was on a call with my writing coach and she's like, well, you, you could do that, but I, I don't recommend deviating from this proven technique. And I said, you know what? That that's okay. I, I'm, I'm, I understand that, but this is something that I have to do. And so when I first uploaded the book to Amazon, I was only able to get five sample copies. And so in order to get the book 70 copies, I had to publish it. And then I could order 75 author copies. However, I I didn't want to tell anybody. So the book was live for about two weeks. And I actually, I logged on one day. I was like, oh shit, I sold a book in the UK. And the next day I was like, oh shit, somebody in France bought it. Um, Yeah, so that's kind of weird. Oh shit, I'm selling books. I didn't want anybody to know the book was out. And then while we were at the retreat, somebody ordered the book and posted in Cafe RE. And I found out at about like two hours before the reveal. And so we're at the RE Unite. And I have a gal named Lee. Um, who we attended Rhythmia together in Costa Rica, beautiful soul. She's like, hey, quick question, Paul, on page 260-something, what does this mean? I'm like, wait, Lee, do you have the book? And then I went over, and there was a table with all the books underneath the black cloth, and I, I ripped the ripped the sheet off, and it was a powerful moment. I teared up. I didn't quite see it coming, and, and I want to say thank you guys for giving me that moment. There was a standing ovation. <laughs> wow, crazy. And, and, I, and this is even on Instagram as well. It's you follow Recovery Elevator on Instagram to see the, uh, the book reveal there. So thank you for that moment. I knew I had to get everybody a copy of that book. And we'll see if I hit the top three bestseller status on and Amazon. Not too worried about that. If the book's good, it should get there anyways without needing a launch strategy. 
like I said, we had 72 people, but at the retreat, I made a conscious effort to break people into smaller groups. And there was a men's group. I think there was about 10 or 12 of us there. And a guy named Lance dropped a huge value bomb. He said he's been working on rewiring the brain to train himself that alcohol is not the reward. Everybody in the group was like, ooh, nice job, Lance. That was huge. And so many of us have the neural networks providing that alcohol is the reward, that we can go through our day, get everything done, do our workouts, uh, pay the bills, et cetera, tidy up life, and then we can have the reward alcohol at the end of the day. Well, Lance, nice job. Thanks for sharing that alcohol is not the reward. And we need to slowly break the energetic ties in the brain that are reinforcing that alcohol is the reward. I work with a gal named Elaine, who is a counselor and a spiritual advisor. She originally was a counselor or psychologist, and now she does a combination of counseling and spiritual advising, shall we say. And her website is Embodiment of Freedom. I know if you Google that, it will show up. And so I wanted to bring Elaine to the retreat to do an hour and a half presentation on calming the mind, meditation, and talk a little bit more about what we can lean into when we calm the mind. And so when Elaine and I first discussed her speaking at the retreat, she says, well, what would you like me to talk about? I said, well, the talk of a higher power or higher consciousness, et cetera, that can divide a room in recovery, especially the word God. And so I was like, you know, let's, let's talk about meditation. But once we get to that stuff, uh, let's just like dip our toe in the water. Uh, let's not go too deep in that. And so Elaine shows up on Friday morning and she says, Paul, are we still sticking with the plan? I look at her and I go, you know what, Elaine, just pull out all the stops. Let's roll. They are ready for this. Now, I've attended two of Elaine's half-day meditation retreats. Well, we'll meditate, and then she'll give a spiritual talk. And these are people that are paying $30, $40 to attend her events, and they're interested in awakening, enlightenment, embodiment. And the Q&A session at those events, they were, they were both just pure surface level. The Q&A for our event, holy cow, we, we went deep. I mean, Elaine was talking past lives, old souls, new souls, tapping into the higher consciousness. She was talking about different realities, different dimensions, how we currently live in a three-dimensional reality, and she was backing it up with science of how to tap into the fourth and fifth dimensions. It was intense. There were tears and breakthroughs in, in her session alone. So my takeaway from that was, holy buckets, we are ready for this. We are ready to wake up and start changing fuel sources from the five sensory perceptions, which is sight, touch, taste, smell, and hearing. We are changing our fuel sources into the unknown, and that's where the magic happens. It was incredible to see the response to this. So this retreat was specific to moving forward in life without alcohol. However, we discussed the, the core source of it, which is the mind. And I had the pleasure of meeting Bill in person. I interviewed him on episode 209. And he had a great question, I think on day three. And you could hear there was some frustration in the question. We're talking about the thinking mind. And he said, how do I make it stop? When we depart from alcohol, it becomes evident that the thinking mind ramps up. This is totally normal. We no longer have alcohol to tamp down those thoughts, to turn the volume level down on the thinking mind. So great question, Bill. And a gal named Kelly had a fantastic answer was, you can't turn the thinking mind off. I think she said, it's a little like asking the pancreas to stop doing its function. It's a little like asking the heart to stop beating. The thinking mind has a function. It's supposed to think. The problem is, is when we become fully identified with the thinking mind. In fact, there should be about a 50-50 split. We're going to call that balance. Yes, we're going to go with the word balance on that. There should be a balance. However, I think the majority of people living on the planet are like a 99-1 split. 99% identified with a thinking mind, 1% identified with no thought. And unfortunately, those 1% of no thought moments come from moments where you have to shut off the thinking mind. Those can be in moments of emergencies or perhaps we're doing a high-intensity sports, things like that. And so we want to find a 50-50 split with a thinking mind. And, you know, you, I kind of got to read between the lines when I listen to Eckhart Tolle talk in both of his books, The Power of Now and A New Earth. He drops these little bombs, these little value bombs. He says, 
You don't need to meditate. This, 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 this needs to be done off the cushion. And so what I've been cognizant of doing lately, and we did this exercise, is I go five on, five off. I go five seconds thinking mind, five seconds no mind. And how I access the no mind, I'll focus on a bird chirping. I'll locate my energies outside the mind. I'll find a car driving. And so I go five seconds on, five seconds off. And there's nothing wrong with meditation practices, but the unconscious mind, which is almost more cunning and baffling than alcohol itself, will, they'll trick you. I'll say, okay, you get 20 minutes in the morning before work to shut off the thinking mind. Like I'll take a nap for 20 minutes. Um, but then later in the day when you're not meditating, it's game on says the ego or protective personality. So do your best to shut off the thinking mind temporarily throughout the day. I try to do this 50, hundred, 200 times a day. And it takes practice at first until it becomes the norm. There is no such thing as pure no mind or full ego disillusionment. What we're trying to do is find a better balance, reprioritize the ego, the protective personality from number one on the list, bring it down to three or four. So then there's Britic on Saturday night. And I interviewed Britic in episode 163. So we've got a breath work workshop to close out the trip. Burdick is a certified circular and clarity breathwork practitioner, and he led all 70 of us through how to do the clarity breathwork, which is basically no pauses at the top and the bottom of breath. So it goes just like that for about an hour. And we're not hyperventilating, but we're creating an oxygen-rich environment inside the body. There was a fantastic soundtrack accompanied with the breathwork. Burdick had a couple assistants to assist people if they found themselves in difficult situations. He pressed play and he said, okay, let's breathe. So there are 70 of us lying down on the floor on a basketball court. So 70 people on a basketball court, they have to be head to toe and about a foot away from each other to, to fit 70 people. We got blankets, we got pillows, and we're breathing to this beautiful music. Nothing happens for the first 10 minutes, then all of a sudden you start to hear it come out. People are purging things that have been holding them up their entire lives. People are allowing the body to release the why. The why is the why we drink. We got straight to the source. I heard people uncontrollably sob loud. They let it out. I heard people get the cosmic joke where they had uncontrollable laughter that was contagious. I heard people hitting the grounds with their fists, yelling, screaming, letting it all out. When the breath work had finished and Britt asked if anybody would like to share, there was about seven or eight people who shared full-on mystical experiences of being visited by deceased relatives, nieces, nephews, sons, some who had committed suicide and came to that person at the retreat and said, it's okay, let go. This had nothing to do with you. You're free. I mean, that's powerful stuff. So yes, shit did go down in Montana. Um, it was an incredible trip, all of it. It was fun. It was incredible. But most importantly, it was authentic. And so the magic doesn't have to stop there. We do have an alcohol-free trip planned to Asia. This is Thailand and Cambodia, January 20th through the 31st. Go to recoveryelevator.com and you can see the full itinerary and details. This trip, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to cap it at 25. And right now we're at 15 people who have signed up. And keep in mind, I'm about a month ahead on podcast episodes, so we might even be more than 15 at the time of the release of this episode. So that was the retreat. It was absolutely incredible, and I want to thank everybody who attended. And after we hear from Rose, I'm going to say a couple words on cravings, but before we hear from Rose, let's hear from Cafe Ari. The three most important lessons I've learned while quitting drinking are, we can't do this alone. We need accountability and a supportive community is key. In the private unsearchable Facebook groups, Cafe RE, you're going to get all three and much more. What does private mean? Well, these groups are unsearchable on Facebook. Who's in the group and what is said can only be seen by members. You get 24 seven access to a group full of others whose priority it is to ditch the booze. These groups are capped at under 350 members to ensure a quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking doesn't have to suck. In fact, it can be a lot of fun. For $19 a month, 
You too can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online meetups, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and much more. Oh yeah, you'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Rose, how are you? I'm great, thanks Paul, how are you? Rose, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking, let's get right into this. When was your last drink? My last drink was March the 12th, 2019. March 12th, we're coming up on five months here? Yep, that's right. Nice job, how's it feel? It feels amazing. One word, there we go. And listeners, Rose is part of the private Recovery Elevator Community Cafe RE, and I saw her post a video about self-loathing titled Jog On Self-Loathing. Absolutely loved it, and I reached out to Rose separately and said, hey, I want to do an interview, and I'm going to read a little bit of our dialogue. I said, hey, Rose, I loved your Jog On Self-Loathing video. I was hoping to share your story with the Recovery Elevator audience and do an interview. Would you be open to this? And her response was, hey, Paul, oh, God. I don't feel half as interesting as the other interviewees. They're all amazing. You love that word. (laughs) In saying that, yes, I would be open to doing it, although maybe not just yet. I'm right in the middle of trying to make sense of myself and feel like I would be a rambling, crazy person. Could you please give me a couple of weeks at least? (laughs) All right. And then, then here's my response. I go, Rose. You're the first person that has asked for extra time because they aren't quite where they want to be yet in life. I'm kidding. So, Rose, that's a common response and perfectly normal. In fact, that's a good reason to move forward with the interview just the way you are in this particular life situation. Of course, I will respect if you'd like to postpone the interview, but my vote is to let's get it scheduled and do it. And here we are, less than two weeks after that dialogue. So you did, you did get two weeks. <laughs> um, and here we are. And, it, and I was joking. Um, I, that's a common response that I get. Say, hey, let me uh, reach back out to me when I've got six months or I've got a year or a year and a half. Nonsense, Rose. Today's the day. Let's do it. I'm so excited to have you and uh, share your story. How are you feeling? Are you ready to do this? Yep, I'm ready. Okay. All right. Well, Rose, give listeners a little background about yourself, where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun? So I'm 37 years old. I'm from Taranaki in New Zealand, um, but I currently live in Dijon, in, which is in um, the Burgundy region of France. I am a physiotherapist by, by trade, but my degree is not recognized here yet, so I'm teaching English at the moment, and I'm really enjoying it. I'm just recently married to my man of 11 years, who's a Frenchman, and we've got a three-year-old son who's utterly adorable. And what do I like to do for fun? I love to cook. I love to sing. I I sing in a modern women's choir in in Dijon. I like to be outdoors, um, especially anything to do with the water. I like sailing. Yeah, it's well, I like going to gigs. I like going to see bands. Yeah, that's me. Two questions. What does a physiotherapist do? And the second question, are you familiar with the owl in Dijon? (laughs) Yes. Two uh, great questions also. So a physiotherapist is known as a physical therapist in in the States, I think. So my area of physiotherapy is in um, cardiorespiratory, essentially a lot of helping people to breathe and also neurological. Yeah, I think so. Breathing, pretty important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah, yes, um, neurological physiotherapy. So working with a lot of um, early stroke patients, people with Parkinson's disease or multiple sclerosis and people like that. Um, And yes, I'm familiar with the owl of Dijon. (laughs) We always have to take everyone on the owl walking tour when they come to visit. Yeah, so tell listeners what that is. Well, owl is essentially the um, symbol of Dijon, the chosen symbol of Dijon. And um, it's... It's attached to a little uh, to a, to a cathedral in Dijon, and um, there are little symbols all over the ground that sort of lead you around the town. And you walk past the special owl, and you need to walk past it while it's on your left side, and you need to rub it with your left hand for luck. 
Yeah, when I was studying abroad in Spain, my brother had just graduated college and he was teaching English in Dijon, France. I went out there and he was telling me about this owl that we had to go buy and rub for good luck. And I saw a postcard of it. And I'm thinking this owl is like maybe six feet tall. Um, <laughs> it can like fit in the size of your palm. It's incredibly underwhelming. But I've had tremendous luck since <laughs> age of 21. I mean, look, look at this. We're, look, we're podcasts. Like, we're, man, life just got good after that owl. I'm just kidding. Um, no, I'm not kidding. Things are things happen exactly the way they were supposed to happen. Um, and before we get to your jog on the self-loathing and address that in further detail, give listeners a background about your drinking. How much you drank? Did you ever attempt to moderate? When did you first realize that perhaps it was a problem? Did you ever have any rock bottom moments? I'm excited to hear your story, Rose. Okay. So I'm coming from New Zealand. We have a pretty well-known binge drinking culture. Everyone drinks, really. So, you know, I started drinking as a teenager um, at parties and things like that. Just out on the weekends, that continued through. It was normal. You know, I grew up in a very loving family, but a family of boozers. Uh, my extended family were boozers. Everyone in the community were boozers. And it was normal. It felt normal. So I never, you know, never recognized that there would be, a, you know, a problem growing up. Off to university when I turned 18 to Wellington to study politics. And, you know, I just, I don't really recall many lectures at all. I just spent the majority of my time drinking, you know, wildly partying and then experimenting with all sorts of bits and pieces. And um, I dropped out of the degree because it was just getting in the way of my drinking. Really, after two years, I moved um cities I think when I and I I think I realized at that time I had a lot of friends who were getting quite serious you know finishing their degrees getting jobs and I was still stuck in a place of you know trying to find different people to drink with all the time so I, I moved on from there and I moved to another place called Nelson it's a, it's a little um city at the top of the South Island of New Zealand just basically found another big group of drinkers where I could start to feel normal again and for around five years down there I was in a pretty pretty bad uh, I would say emotionally quite abusive relationship with someone um, and so I spent a good chunk of my 20s sort of getting out of and recovering from that. After that I um, jumped on a sailing ship um, actually at one point but I didn't know what I was doing with my life. I had a friend who had a, a beautiful old boat and he asked me to come with him to help teach the rest of the crew who were from all over the world. We jumped on this big boat and we sailed to Fiji. And I spent most of my time just, you know, becoming an expert in brewing beer so we wouldn't run out of booze um, while we were over in the islands. We were on a medical aid project over there. So it was a pretty amazing experience. But, yeah, again, booze was a big focus. Uh, the name like um, here is watch out for icebergs. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Terrible. Exactly. Keep going. Not that you'd find a lot of them in the tropics, but no. hey. And um, I decided while I was over there, actually, that I would come back and study physiotherapy. I came home. I kind of toned down the drinking for a little while there while I really got stuck into studying because I didn't want to have a repeat of my you know, first failure. And so how old were you when you got into studying physiotherapy after the boat? Yes. Um, so this was around 2009. Okay. So you're 37 now. So about yeah. 27? Yes. Gotcha. So you're slowing down, starting to buckle down with the, the career, physiotherapy, which definitely is recognized in, in America over here. Physical therapy, great profession. Um, yeah. yeah. What happens next? Fast forward to a couple of years. I, I got my degree. I got a great job in a hospital where I wanted to work and a great team. In 2016, I had my child. So obvious, I didn't drink during the pregnancy. Um, that was the longest since I was, you know, probably 16 or 17 that I hadn't drunk that nine months. And then I fell um, prey, I guess, to the mummy drinking culture, you know, mummy needs wine, you know, type shit, you yeah, know. That's after just, the birth of your child? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, you know, hanging out with the wine mums and sort of just using any excuse really to justify a wine. Yeah, hang on. So before the birth of your child, you went, you went nine months without drinking. Around this time, are there any red flags? Are you starting to question your drinking? Or is it like, you know, the boat time's over, now I'm a professional? Or did you start to question at this time? I don't think I started to even question, which is crazy because the culture is so deeply ingrained, the drinking culture there. However, I do recall 
around that time quite a lot of feelings of shame while I was working and that and I think you and I talked about this a little while ago the starting of this real imposter syndrome around that time thinking here I am working um, you know I have this incredible job I'm working towards people's health uh, I'm working with people who have these terrible, terrible diseases, you know, a lot of the time caused by alcohol or, you know, smoking or whatever. And here I am getting absolutely wasted on the weekends and doing the exact thing that I'm educating them not to do right now. So I felt felt like a massive fraud during that time. I thought I'm going to be found out by someone really soon. I thought I, that was when I started thinking, God, how have I even got this job? How did I finish this degree? Someone's going to find out. Someone's going to realize that I know absolutely nothing. And how how am I here? You know, I'd find myself in these multidisciplinary meetings with doctors and other health professionals talking about a patient, and and I would suddenly sort of not zone out, but I'd have this little moment where I was like, How am I here? How is this a reality? You know, I'm just this boozer. You know, who, who, how am I here? So that was when I started sort of developing those feelings of low self-worth around or becoming aware of them anyway. Oh, becoming aware of them. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. Yeah. We were in a webinar the other day and you talked about the imposter syndrome, which I love. And I know a lot of people resonate with that, including myself. And so after the birth of your child, you fall into the, thing with the mommy drinking culture. Uh, get us mm-hmm. up to speed. I mean, it's pretty disgusting how really how um, everyone, but I think especially women in that sort of subgroup are preyed on by, you know, advertising and alcohol companies in terms of that it's a normal thing. You know, they normalize that thing, um, that mummy needs wine type mum's group, um, you know, ladies cocktails type thing, you know, it's just absolute bullshit. And I can see it now for what it is. But at the time, you know, and I was dealing with a little bit of postnatal depression and things like that. And it was just like, oh, I need a drink, you know, and let's get the girls around. And oh, you know, parenting is hard. Let's all have a drink. And it was just all very normalized. And so you eventually were able to push through the veneer of the culture and you could see it for what it really was. But towards the end there, and for, for that to happen, towards the end, there has to be some discomfort, something that says, all right, Rose, like this is no longer serving us. And here are examples A, B, C, and D. It's time to ditch mm-hmm. the booze. Walk us up to the months or days before you made the decision. Was there anything in particular that happened? Yeah, I would say a big part of it was moving to France. So we left New Zealand when my son had just turned one, and this is in 2017. And we, we moved over here. And suddenly I found myself in this very, like the polar opposite drinking culture where they have very, as you would probably be aware, the French have pretty healthy attitudes to alcohol in general, just the the polar opposite of New Zealand. So I would certainly be out of place going for another wine at lunch or, you know, having a wine at home without company, that kind of thing, you know. So I realized that... Yeah, that that I needed to to rein it in when I would, you know, get looks from people or someone might make a comment, you know, a fairly innocuous comment. But, you know, I would be acutely aware that I was different from from everyone here. And I was just like, oh, God, these people are normal. You know, this is I'm not normal. So I had um, a, a friend of mine pass away, unfortunately, at the start of this year. And, you know, I had... I have, it was a, obviously it's always a sad time when someone dies, but you know, when you don't get the chance to say goodbye, you know, I'm 25, 30 hours flight from home. So it's not easy to knit back for funerals and things like that. So I had a bit of grief going on and, you know, a bit of sort of lurking depression. And that sort of was the, seemed like the, the perfect time to ramp up my drinking really. So even though I knew that I needed to stop, I sort of, had a bit of a spiral down at that point earlier this year and started uh, really knocking back the wine to to really avoid any forward progress I think at the time I just sort of wanted to be stuck and I didn't want to have to move forward through my grief or anything like that so I started drinking a lot more heavily um, and this was this year uh, right so that was saying? this year okay yeah. Gotcha. That was in, yeah that was in probably around February okay. so 
Yeah, I had been drinking last year in 2017 for that second half of the year, but um, it ramped up at the start of this year when I was dealing with my friend's death. And um, also, I think probably taking advantage of the fact that I'm fairly isolated over here in terms of not knowing many people and and not uh, speaking French fluently. Sure. Um, you know, it's not super easy to make friends. So I could easily be getting away with getting getting drunk on my own uh, without anyone suspecting or having a clue apart from my husband and I don't really think he even knew the extent of it although certainly he was a bit you know concerned you know yeah absolutely and so what happened on March 12th what happened I had started to drink during the daytime when my son had gone to daycare and I wasn't on pickup duty now real quick was that a line in the sand that used to tell yourself I'm not going to drink in the daytime Okay. Absolutely. That, gotcha. that was a line that was crossed. Okay. You know, I would wait. I would wait until, you know, the at least the late afternoon. And then that sort of started getting earlier and earlier and earlier. And, and I'd started smoking cigarettes just because you could over here. And I felt a bit, you know, it was a bit of wild abandon going on. I thought, oh, fuck it. You know, sorry about my language. Um, You're good. You know, I'm drinking a lot. Might as well have a ciggy as well. Why not? And drinking wine out of a out of a coffee cup so that the neighbors, you know, wouldn't be concerned because, you know, it was 11 a.m., you know, on a Monday. So I think I had I was starting to piss off my partner, I think. And I was also just having a humongous amount of guilt about not being present as a parent. What did that feel like? The guilt? I know for myself, guilt and shame was a big impetus for me quitting drinking. What was the guilt like for you? Can you drill into a specific moment? It would be things like my son wanting a story before bedtime and me, I would do it, but I'd be feeling resentful. It's really mm. embarrassing to admit this, to be honest. Hey, we've all um, yeah, it was, I'd be resentful that I had to get through the story before I could go and have a drink. And this is this gorgeous, adorable little guy. And and I, it, there was a moment where I sort of looked back at how resentful I'd just been towards this beautiful little guy. And I just thought to myself, oh, my God, you know, it's really time to do something about this. That's that's kind of what drove me to do that, was the recognition that I was drinking in the mornings and that I was not being the mum that, that he deserved me to be. Wow. Okay, so your awareness kicks in. You're feeling, wait a second, I, 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 I'm resentful for having to read a bedtime story. And what happens next? How do you do it? Well, actually, it was kind of a, kind of a <laughs> funny story. So my friend that had died was the captain of the boat that I had sailed on all those years ago. And there was an American couple that I had met uh, years and years ago who had sailed on the boat the season before I was on there. Through through my friend's death, I reconnected with this American woman who I hadn't known very well. And it turned it turned out, you know, I saw a couple of her posts about getting sober, mm. and this was around the same time. And I saw she had been to the Cafe Ari retreat in Nashville, and I sort of started reading through some of her things and thinking, oh my God, this is I need, you know, this is what I need to do. And so I reached out to her, and I didn't know her very well. And she was in, she's in another Facebook group than me. This little angel popped into my life. Is this and, Tiffany? Um, oh, it is Tiffany. Okay. Yeah. I, th- I think she's two episodes before you. This is crazy how this is working out. <laughs> yeah, I swear. I think it was, or maybe hers has come, it comes out this month. Wow. That, okay. That's yeah. neat. She is what led, she's the person who led me to Cafe Ari. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And then you're on the same podcast three weeks, four weeks later. That's incredible. That, that is crazy. Yeah. Okay. And so you're seeing things with clarity. The booze has got to go. What was mm-hmm. March 12th like or 13? How did you do it? I just see, I guess I sort of subconsciously created a little bit of accountability for myself. And I said to Luke, um, this is it. You know, I don't know if it's going to be for good. I'd been listening to a couple of your podcasts and hey, Rose, I, I got to no, stop was... you right there. You created a little accountability for yourself. You told your husband, I assume Luke's your husband? Yes. You told Luke, <laughs> your significant other, probably at this moment in your life, the most influential or the most the most important person in your life. You burn the ships with him. That's not creating a little bit of accountability. That's huge. 
Um, so, yeah. so listeners, we can't downplay that right now. I mean, if, if, if Rose, if you were to like call in, if we're on like a talk show, be like, Hey, I can't quit drinking. I'd be like, Hey, go tell Luke. You did it. Nice job. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I created a huge amount of accountability talking to Luke and um, he was all for it. He's a normal drinker. I, he does, you know, anything that I want to do to, to be better, you know, um, he supports me all the way. I said, I need all the alcohol out of the house. And I'm going to say no to any engagements coming up. Um, I need to really give this a good shot. And yes, yeah, so we did just that. All the booze out. He said, I'm not going to drink around you and I'm not going to drink at home. And I was like, thanks, that's, you know, gorgeous. And I don't recall too much about that day, to be honest. I just sort of remember that time of thinking, am I doing this? You know, am I doing this? And then just really obsessively started you know following the page and connecting with people and listening to the podcast reading people's stories watching people's videos connecting with um, Tiffany who was just like a wonderful wonderful support and um, of course uh, meeting my accountability partner who I just clicked with immediately that's Betsy little shout out to Betsy it didn't feel massively significant at the time to be honest now it does okay and, and so, yeah, the whole quitting drinking thing can be tough, can be confusing. How do I do it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it can also be this simple. You you burn the ships and you had a clear, definitive reverse intervention, is which, and that is where we have these conversations clearly. You set boundaries. Look, I need all the alcohol gone. This is what's going on in my life. There's no, like, beating around the bush. So burn the ships, create accountability, reverse intervention, sign up for Cafe RE. And there's people who sign up for Cafe RE. I'm not saying this is like a panacea, a cure-all, the best resource in the world. People sign up for it, then they cancel. Be like, yeah, you know, I don't really get much out of it, which is totally fine. And then I'll sometimes, I've done this before, I'll look at their name, and, and they never post it, right? So I didn't get anything out of it. Well, it's, and it's strange. This is something, well, it's not strange. You get out of it what you put into it. Yeah. But holy cow, you before I hit record, Rose, you mentioned you're flying to New York City and you're meeting up with your accountability partner in person. Yeah, and you have fully embraced the community for what it is. Nice job. One of the one of the most awesome people in the group, Lauren, Yogi Lauren, one of the first things that she said to me, and I think Odette as well, but like you really get in what you you really get get out what you put in mm-hmm. um, to this group, you know. So post, post, post. And I thought, just take. You know, I thought, no, absolutely not. I'm new here. And then I thought, oh God, you've got to change. You've got to do things differently. So you feel scared, do it. It's the best reason to do it. So I did. I started getting involved really, really quickly, and I it has been the most incredible tool in my sobriety is Cafe Ari. I love it. You know, it's this community of completely non-judgmental, wonderful, diverse, you know, group of people who are so supportive and you just, I mean, I personally get so, so much from the group. Um, and I think especially being over here, not having access to AA meetings or, you know, in-person meetings and things like that, being, being as French as my second language and I'm not uh, fluent yet, it's, it's so important to me, the IRA community. I love it. Rose, and thanks for being part of it. And I also get back double, triple, quadruple uh, from what I put into the community. And another you know, conundrum we have in recovery is, especially with Cafe RE, I encourage people to say, um, don't ask what you can get. You know, what do I get with my membership? It's weird. Like you got to flip it to what can I give <laughs> with this membership? And listeners, I don't want to make these interviews a Cafe RE plug. Sometimes you organically go there and that's where we went right now. It's uh, I don't know if I would be here still without alcohol if it weren't for Cafe RE. So I got to say thank you to you, Rose, for being part of it. Oh, thank you, Paul. You've created something completely magical and unique. It's been fun. And let's talk about jog on self-loathing. It sounds like you've been addressing <laughs> that hard lately. Talk to us about self-loathing. I mean, um, if I'm completely honest, I don't know where it's come from yet. And I'm in the middle of working on that right now. So, you know, that's okay. I am where I am. But I'm starting to scratch the surface a little bit more. I do know that a lot of that is linked with the imposter syndrome that we were talking about. You know, um, if you don't feel like you belong somewhere and you're going to, you feel like you're going to be found out all the time, you start to, you know, all that negative self-talk and that negative chatter is constantly going and going and going. And, you know, it's just, it's just a sort of continuous cycle. It can be really difficult to, to break. 
When was the first time you remember feeling the imposter syndrome? At my first job after I after I graduated, um, my physiotherapy job at okay. the hospital. But then so I realized that it sort of spilled into even, uh, you know, my close circle of friends. I would be thinking, how the hell have I found myself in this group of such amazing, intelligent, you know, artistic, musical, ama- you know, amazing people? You know, how how have I found myself here with these people, you know, having nothing to offer? You know, so I just I've I've always had this kind of talk in my head about being, you know, feeling inferior around everyone else. And I think I'm, you know, I'm I'm working out now that booze was a way to make myself feel on everyone else's level. I could be wittier and um, happier and more more hilarious um, and more entertaining when I was drunk. And perhaps that was my my place within, you know, that um, that situation. Sure, and Rose, correct me if I'm wrong. When we remove the booze, we sometimes incorrectly think that um, the, the, the self-loathing, that imposter syndrome will go away. But we're using the booze to actually blend in, to actually soften the imposter syndrome. And so what happens, we take alcohol away from our life, and almost those feelings are turned up. Um, because that's where we have to go. That's what we're supposed to be addressing at this moment in our life. So I imagine you're addressing it. Am I right? And, and how yes. are you doing it? Yeah, so that's a that's a really good point because I think probably like the the biggest you know moment that I sort of a realization that I've had in my sobriety journey has been realizing that alcohol wasn't necessarily always the cause of my problems, but just what I used to dull them down. That, that was a huge thing for me. That it seems so one. obvious. With the gift of sobriety for me, right now the biggest gift, apart from being, you know, a way better mum, is the ability to now be aware of and address and do something about these problems. That's the biggest gift to me. Yeah, earlier you said, so here we are, when you started talking about the self-loathing. Um, you know, I've thought about it in the past, but here we are. In my in my direction, um, would be to let the past die hard, maybe reference it a couple moments to make better decisions for the future. But here we are, right? Let's the self-loathing. It's going to be difficult to address that if we're constantly in the past. Yeah. Yeah. So totally. I was sitting at the hairdresser a couple of days ago, and immediately, uh, this is actually the first time that I've that I've become acutely aware of that negative self-talk. You know, you're sitting in the in the hairdresser. You've got you forced to look at yourself for a good hour in the mirror um you know you've slipped back here not looking the hottest you've ever looked and you start this chatter oh god you know you've put on a bit of weight and oh you you've got bags under your eyes and i was like oh my god here it is you know what is that i i stopped it and i immediately and i thought right i'm going to put into practice what i've been talking about and i started you know telling myself some little positive things about myself that were, you know, slightly believable, not stuff like, look at this supermodel or anything like that, but just, you know, you're looking pretty good, your skin's looking pretty glowy, you know, you've got a nice nose, your hair's looking pretty good, you know, you're at the hairdresser, so you hope so, you know, and and, and then I started thinking, okay, these are just sort of surface things, and I started saying to myself, you are, you have done so well to come this far in your sobriety, and this is the first time, you know, that I have really you know, in an authentic sort of situation, being able to to use those tools. And it felt great. You know, I walked out of there thinking, yes, something's changing here, you know. Rose, that's a big five months. Accountability, burn the ships, uh, the awareness, yeah. right? You were able to see it because sometimes those unconscious behaviors, the unconscious voices uh, will go unchecked for years, decades. Sometimes they never become uh, become checked. So yeah. nice job. Yeah. And oftentimes it's like, well, what do I do now? There really isn't much to do now with awareness alone. It will soften. It will mitigate. Great job. And Rose, how have things changed in an alcohol-free life? I am a better mother for sure. And that was probably my number one goal in starting this whole thing. I'm more present. I really enjoy the time with my son. I'm not always focused on when the next drink is coming or, you know, and I'm not hung over and unable to go to the park with him and his dad on a beautiful summer morning. 
you know, lying in bed feeling gross, ordering bad food on Uber Eats, you know, feeling guilty and feeling shame, you know. So that's the number one thing um, for me. The second thing is that I think just what we've been talking about is just this increase in self-love and self-worth and self-acceptance. Um, that's been such a sort of a low-grade struggle for me for my entire adult life. And that's all just really starting to change. I'm just starting to feel so excited about everything, you know. Whilst trying to remain in the moment, I'm excited about the future, you know. I'm, there's so much to do. There's so much to do. I feel like I've just been, you know, existing just below the surface for so many years and now I feel like I've sort of just woken up and it's there's so many amazing things in the world that I can do, you know, in a day. And um, it's exciting to find out what those are, find out what things I'm into, you know. In the past several months, has there been a tricky situation? Have you had cravings? Has there been the pull to drink again? I mean, how do you get past it? Yeah, shit, yes. I was married a couple of months ago, nearly a couple of months ago. It, that was a huge deal. I thought to myself when I first joined the group, there's, you know, this is really nice. I'm really glad that I'm getting some sober time, but there's no way in hell that I'm going to do, you know, my, my hens party, which is a bachelorette party, or or my, my wedding sober. You know, it's me. I'm the party girl of my group. Everyone's relying on me to be the last woman standing. You know, I, there's just, there's, it's, it's impossible. And so even though I was going through the motions, I still thought it's not going to happen. This, you know, it's not going to happen. And that just started to chip away and chip away through talking to people in the in the group, in the RE group, and just talking and talking and talking it out and getting all these different perspectives. And I, I, I changed my mind. Um, at the last minute, my bachelorette party turned, <laughs> turned upside down. The organiser... Uh, the weather turned funny and she decided she would organize a more of a sort of wine tasting type situation. Everyone knew that I was sober, that was going. So it was a bit upsetting for me. I was quite pissed off about it, but I found myself getting over that fairly quickly. I just said no. So I bailed on my own (laughs) bachelorette party. They all went. I actually made them all go because they were visiting from New Zealand. I said, look, I've got a shitload of stuff to do. You guys go. I'm not going to do it. And don't worry about it. It's all good. My mum was there. So it was nice to have her support. She's really, really proud of me and really, really stoked with what I'm doing. And I got through that. That was fine. Not the end of the world. Then my wedding I had been freaking out about that, just thinking, you know, it's how boring is it going to be now? And with all this amazing alcohol, you know, we'd got craft beer and we'd tasted all the wine and we're living in Burgundy, you know, it's the best wine region in the world, blah, blah, blah. How am I going to get through this thing? And, you know, I would be lying if I said it was a really wonderful, easy, perfect day. It was a beautiful day and I had a really fabulous time in the in the daytime. But then it turned, you know, it turned upside down for me towards the evening, as soon as people started getting drunk, you know, and there were a lot of people there. It was a quite a large wedding and, you know, all of our friends and family are big drinkers and, um, yeah, people started getting really totaled and um, I just thought, I can't, I can't do this. I can't sort of be a part of this. And I felt quite isolated. I took Luke around the back and had a talk to him and I said, I'm going to slip off to bed and I'm going to just say that, that our son couldn't sleep and while I was getting him to sleep, I fell asleep. It was after 12, so I made it past 12, but I went to bed at my own wedding and I let everyone else party. And it was a very strange feeling, but I knew that I was making the right decision because, you know, I just knew, I I thought there was a risk. Potentially there would be a risk that I would be too tempted and too left out and that I would drink. And so I was like, right, off to bed. And I'm so happy I did it. You know, I got through my own wedding sober and I thought after that if I can do that I can do absolutely anything when was your wedding date it was June the 22nd wow I'm so glad I asked that question because this is possible you can do it I know listeners are saying well you know I want to I want to quit drinking today but I've got this event on the calendar I've got that I've got a wedding I've got this coming up holy buckets rose that is inspirational 
So thank you for sharing that. I mean, sure, it felt weird. It was tough. But deep down, you knew that that's what you had to do. And you listened to something. You did it. I mean, it was at your wedding yeah. night. And something was like, look, I got to step out. And nice job. Yeah, I'm proud of myself. It was a great job. And it also meant that I, you know, being sober that day, it was wonderful. I can remember every conversation that I had with people. I could be very present in conversations that I had with people, ask them questions, not focused on anything else, you know, e.g. a glass of wine, and just talk to people and listen to people. And it was wonderful. And then the next day, you know, while everyone else woke up looking like, you know, haggard zombies, I felt great, you know, and I could entertain, which I loved doing. I could look after people and, you know, organize the food and everything. It was great. I loved it. It was perfect. Wow. Great job. And Rose, we reached the rapid fire round. If you can answer these questions in 30 to 60 seconds, that'd be great. Are you ready? Yes. All right. What's your favorite alcohol-free drink? Pineapple and lime, badwa, sparkling water. Oh, is that uh, just a European France drink? I think so, but I'm not sure. That sounds Sorry. delicious. You mentioned Cafe RE. Thank you so much for being part of it. What are some other resources that have been helpful on this journey? I loved the, unexpe uh, God, the unexpected joy of being sober, the book. I also really love Josh Corder's Dharma Punks podcast. You know, as you might know, he's a Buddhist teacher, I think based in New York who speaks a lot about recovery from addiction, being a recovering alcoholic and uh, drug addict himself. Fascinating guy, who I'm lucky enough to go and see while I'm in New York, so I'm super excited about that. Um, I'm taking Eric with me. What else? Um, there's a New Zealand woman called Lotta Dan, and she has a little blog with a book of the same name called Mrs. D is Going Without, um, which was really cool, really helpful to me in the first part of my recovery. She's got another book, too, called Mrs. D is Going Within, um, and that's about the, the second part of her recovery. Right, I'm sober. What do I do now? And what's on your bucket list now that alcohol isn't part of your life? A lot more travel. I love to travel. To be able to help someone else get sober now that I know what a wonderful life it can offer. Well, you're doing that, that on a large a scale right now. Nice job. Mm -hmm. And what parting piece of guidance can you give the listeners? Connect. Connect with people. I I can't, you know, talk about it strongly enough. Um, it, it's been the most important tool to me is to connect with people and talk with people. And um, as I learned early on in Cafe Ari, look for the similarities and not the differences within this group of people. You know, you can find just the most profound riches, you know, within such a group of people who have all these diverse amazing experiences and other people have so much to offer keep your mind open and connect with people talk to people talk 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 and before we depart give listeners your own customized that you might have a drinking problem if line <laughs> you might have a drinking problem if you're drinking wine out of a coffee mug just so the neighbors won't know because it's 11 a.m on a monday and listeners uh, the book Alcohol is Shit, I asked uh, people from Cafe RE to submit their customized you might be an alcoholic if line or you might have a drinking problem if line or you might need to ditch the booze if lines and rows. You got like five of them in there. So nice job. Thank you so much <laughs> for the contributions. And thanks for sharing your story. Oh, I loved it. Great job. Thanks so much for having me, Paul. I was so anxious about this, but it's actually been really fun. You... And thank you for all that you do for this community. Amazing. Yeah, you nailed it. Great job. Cravings. It's important to recognize that a craving after the initial alcohol detox, the initial alcohol withdrawal, which can be anywhere from three to, to a week to 14 days, depending on the severity, the cravings aren't to the drug called alcohol itself. The craving is the desire to feel differently. And so simply recognizing this can empower you to say, okay, look, I'm not craving alcohol. I'm craving a desire to feel differently than I currently am. So then play the tape forward in a different format here and think, how do you want to feel? And trace that back to how you're currently feeling. Ask yourself, is it okay to feel how I'm feeling right now? Why do I want to feel differently? And what is so bad about how I'm feeling right now? And then ask yourself another question. Are you okay right now? You might not like how you're currently feeling, but are you okay? 
Is this an emergency? Most likely that answer is always no. And human beings do a great job of incorrectly labeling a craving. Usually in the first month, two months, three months, you're not even craving alcohol. You're craving sugar because there's so much sugar in alcohol. And Kirby, we're going back old school for this closeout. You took the elevator down. You got to take the stairs back up. You can do this. I love you guys. <laughs>